Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Beyond Rope and Fence Written by David Groh and published in 1922. The book tells the story from the perspective of a seasoned mare and her daughter. Set in Alberta, Canada, the story looks at the life from the viewpoint of horses. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to send their gratitude to me during the week. As the year draws to a close, I'm grateful to be featured in many of your most frequently played podcasts for 2020. Special thanks to Josie, Alice, and Nicole for mentioning me in your stories on Instagram. Thank you also to Matt Nichols for your lovely message on Instagram. Thank you as always to the Anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to support the show. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out a lot. If you would like, you can also say hello 
at boyeatersleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyeatersleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Beyond Rope and Fence by David Grow. Forward. In the fall of the year, the farmers and the ranchers of the northwest prairies of Canada release their horses for the winter. Strange as it may seem to those of us who shudder at the very thought of raging blizzards on the open plains, the horses that are left free to roam over unsheltered space are obliged to dig down through feet of snow for their grass, not only survive the severest winters, but are generally found fat and strong the next spring. If while you are out riding, you happen upon a group of these free horses, they will stare at you curiously until they begin to fear that you have come to gather them up and to take them back to the farmyard. Then with angry, defiant tossing of heads, they will turn and gallop out of reach, going so fast that you will not see them for snow dust. The horse you are riding, if he has ever enjoyed a winter of that freedom, will struggle to get away from you so that he may join them. Because you will not let him go, he will show his displeasure like a petulant child, and long after you have forced him to abandon the attempt to get loose, long after the happier group has disappeared, he will keep turning his head back and calling yearningly to them. The farmer who releases his horses in the fall rarely loses any of them. Every farmer knows every horse within a radius of 25 miles or more, knows them by name and colour, knows their histories and peculiarities. When the farmer is in doubt as to who some distant rider may be, you can hear him think aloud thus, That's Skinner's sorrel, Billy. Skinner's going for his mail. Or that Spice's white nag, Madge. I'll bet Spice's coming to see about them oats. So in the spring of the year, when the farmers are all out searching for their horses, they know those they come upon. And if some farmer sees Skinner's sorrel, Billy, he will drive him in the direction of Skinner's homestead, talking to Billy as he does so, in some such fashion as this. Well, Billy, you little devil, you ain't any the worse for the worst winter in twenty years. You're fat as a pig. Go on now, get home. I know you don't like the idea of getting back to work, 
but it's soon seeding time, you know. The farmer who works beside his horses daily, who gets to understand every expression of these beautiful, intelligent creatures, always talks seriously to them. This sounds strange to us until we have come in contact with these animals for a short time, when, hardly being conscious of it, we soon start talking to them ourselves. They certainly understand many words, and I have seen evidences of horses recognising at once what sort of temper or mood men happen to be in as soon as they approach them. Just as they learn to understand us, we learn to understand them. Every neigh or whinny takes on the meaning of a word, and their scowling or angry shaking of heads, and their protests against certain discomforts, we impose upon them appear as clearly as the similar expressions of people. The most amazing fact, however, that slowly dawns upon us is the fact that these lovely animals live in a conscious world of their own, not half so different from ours as we have allowed ourselves to think. The rancher is not as intimate with the horses he breeds and rears in virtual wildness on the vast ranges which he leases from the government and about which he builds his barbed wire fences. Naturally so. He has from several hundred to several thousand horses and they are virtually in a wild state until he sells them, when they are broken in, and most of the untamed spirit is crushed out of them by heavy labour. A rancher can rarely tell you how many horses he has. During the spring when colts are most often born, his stock may double for all he knows. He does not attempt to find out until the fall, when he rounds them up. The young colts are separated from their mothers and branded. The poor young things are tied and thrown and the red-hot iron, with the shape of each rancher's particular brand, is pressed upon the shoulder till the insignia is burned through hair and skin where the mark remains as long as the creature lives. The ranch horses are wilder and more spirited than the farm horses, but when the latter are released for the winter, they often mix with the former, breaking up into groups of those who seem to feel themselves more congenial to each other. Every animal has a character and personality of his own, and while he will get along beautifully with one horse, he will fight all the time 
with another. From my observation, it seems to me that the wild free horse does much less quarrelling than the horse that has toiled on the farm, which would indicate quite clearly how much like ours his nature is. Very few of the great herds that rustle for themselves all winter long die while they are away. Those that die are horses that either have been kept in the barn too late or else were in a starved condition when they were released. A horse that has been kept in the barn till after the cold season has set in and has been inured to the warmth of the barn when suddenly exposed to the unsheltered open plains if the weather happens to be severe, will sometimes die because it finds itself unable to adjust to the change in temperature. But there is one peculiarity of horse nature which sometimes kills the best horse, not only in the wilds, but in the pasture or barnyard, if no one is about to come to its assistance. Every horse loves to roll. He will lie down on a sandy spot or on the snow and roll over from side to side. It sometimes happens that he selects a spot that has a deep rut or that is near a wall, a stone or a straw stack. He will roll over and strike the wall or the straw stack or get caught in the rut in such a way that he cannot force himself back. He will remain helpless on his back till someone comes to his rescue. If he gets no assistance, he will die in a very short time, sometimes within less than an hour. But I am interested in the horse as a fellow being, subject as we are to limitations, and to a degree, less perhaps than we are, capable of joy and sorrow. Insofar as these beautiful creatures are able to communicate to others, an indication of the emotions out of which their lives are built. I have taken my story directly from them. My story too comes fresh from the prairies. I did most of its planning while riding on horseback over hundreds of miles of rolling Alberta plains, often coming upon hills from which I could see a perfectly circular horizon without a sign of human life, save perhaps some telltale arrangement of stones laid on the hilltop by Indians whom fate had long since swept from the plains of their fatherland. At such times my pony whose wild and exciting history forms the greater part of this story, 
seemed as much moved by the open vastness and the stillness as I, and, in each his own way, we held communion with the spirit of the wilderness. Langmark, Alberta, Canada. Chapter 1. For the Love of Her Fall Rolling hills and shallow valleys, an ocean of brown waves with fast-drying slows, like patches of sunshine on the surface of the sea. Such was the Canadian prairie that autumn day. Such were the miles and miles of Alberta range, bounded by a barbed wire fence that was completely lost in the unobstructed play of sunshine. It was an open wilderness, so vast that it seemed to stretch on almost endlessly beyond the horizon, which lay desolate and unbroken, like a rusty iron ring, girding the earth. Its immensity, by an inexorable contrast, dwarfed everything that crept over the surface of the plains, into a helpless puniness. The hundred horses on the range, scattered and groped by their predilections for each other, looked in the distance like ants crawling over the surface of a rock. Within sight of each other, bound by the ties of race, they nevertheless had their loves and their preferences. Most of the mothers, with their little colts grazed in a group by themselves, while a few mothers, as it felt that their children were better than their neighbours' children, kept themselves apart from the herd, though always within sight. Among the latter was a shapely, light brown or buckskin mare, who was grazing peacefully about her precious buckskin-coloured daughter. The little one was asleep on the grass. Her graceful little legs were stretched as far as she could stretch them. Her lovely little head lay flat on the ground. Her fluffy tail was thrown back on the grass with a delicious carelessness. She was only six months old, but already the very image of her mother. From the white strip on her forehead and the heavy black mane down to the unequal white spots on her two hind fetlocks, she was like her. Only her wiry, delicately wrought little legs seemed somewhat too long for her. Suddenly, the old mare's head went up high in the air. Her grinding teeth ceased grinding as a broken machine comes to a dead stop. And the round, dilated, knowing eyes pierced the slight haze in the atmosphere. The little head on the grass raised just a bit, looked inquiringly at her beloved mother, quite near, 
then with the innocent confidence of childhood, dropped back again, rubbing the soft, fragrant grass in an ecstasy of contentment. But the old mare continued to gaze intently, standing motionless as a stone. She saw that all other horses were gazing just as intently as she was. Small moving objects, two men on horseback, had broken over the line of shadow along the southern horizon. One of them was loping away to the right and the other to the left. The old buckskin mare had already lived more than twenty years. Not only had she suffered at the hands of man, but she had so many of her babies taken from her. Her mother's heart began beating fast and apprehensively. The other mares, not far from her, also showed signs of extreme nervousness. The buckskin saw them run off for a short distance, as if in panic, then stop and gaze anxiously as the approaching riders came closer. It was time to act. She looked questioningly a moment toward the north, but she realised that direction would soon be closed to her, for she could tell that the riders, loping straight north, meant to turn in time and come back upon them. She called nervously to her little one. The little thing sprang to its feet, sidled up to her, and gazed at the dark specks that were coming together in the north, with fear glowing moist in her large, round eyes. Until she had seen a group of horsemen dismount, one day, she had thought that man was a monstrous sort of horse with a frightful hump on its back. What little she had been able to learn about him since that time had served only to intensify her fear of him, and despite her abiding confidence in her mother, she trembled timorously as she heard the ominous hoofbeats in the distance. The animals instinctively gathered into a bunch and started away at full speed, while one of the horsemen remained some distance behind, ready to prevent the group from going off to either side. The other plunged into the midst of them and deftly separated the mothers and their colts from the rest of the bunch. Then they allowed the single horses to run off to the north at their will, while they came together behind the mothers and their colts and drove them southward toward the long line of shadow that lay like a black elongated reptile below the horizon and parallel to it. That long line of shadow, which widened as they neared it, was a great canyon which the Red Deer River had cut out of the level plains. 
from the jaws of the mouth of the canyon, which were a mile or so apart, the floor of the prairies fell away sheer in places to a depth of a thousand feet. In many spots, there were several parallel cuts in the edge of that floor, where, during the ages, the elements had been unable to remove the loose earth. It lay along the bank in steep hills, which rose up from the bottom of the canyon like gigantic teeth, all crumbling more or less, all dotted with stones and covered here and there, with blotches of sagebrush and cacti. In the centre of the flat-bottomed canyon, as if an ancient torrential flood had spent itself and narrowed down at last to the small, shining stream, a quarter of a mile in width ran the Red Deer River. In the middle of the half-mile-wide space between the river and the hills that made the wall of the canyon stood the buildings of the ranch. The house, a small, shingled structure, stood on the east end of the spacious, sandy yard, while opposite and facing it was the long red barn with its open door below and the gaping window space in the loft above. North of the barn and against its blind wall, as well as partition were made of logs laid horizontally, a foot apart and rising to a height of some eight feet. Each of these two sections had huge swinging gates that opened inward. As helplessly as the waters of Niagara, the frantic mothers stealing side glances at their little ones and feeling them at their sides, poured down the steep incline between the giant teeth into the mouth of the canyon, slipping, sliding, and leaping downward riskily, in haste and fear. On the level bottom of the canyon, the buckskin mare made an attempt to turn from the path which led to the rancher's buildings, in the hope of getting to the river beyond. But one of the horsemen divined her rebellious intention and shot by her like a flash of light, heading her off and forcing her back. She realised the futility of baffling their superior walls, but went back with an angry shake of her wise old head, and a deliberate scowl of hatred for the tormenting man and the servile horse under him, who was betraying his own kind. However, the old mare happened to feel the little buckskin since the forces of evil had as yet made no attempt to separate her from her mother, shook the fear from her heart, 
and took all the delight there was to take in this unexpected excitement of the day. Healthy to the last cell in her body, the race had merely accelerated the circulation of her blood, and the ease with which she was able to keep up with her mother made her conscious of a great and thrilling power. Her eyes and nostrils dilated, her mane bristling, and her tail unfurled, her springy legs carrying her with ease. There was an expression of boundless joy in the motion of her graceful body. The gates of the corral stood wide open, being so driven that they could not swerve from the path. Half the group poured into one section of the corral, and the other half into the other. When they turned at the opposite walls, realising that there, there was no way out again, and came back toward the gates, they saw the men closing them. Only the soul that has been trapped knows the crushing torment of four relentless walls. Round and round they went, madly and stupidly. The clouds of beaten earth rose from under their feet and choked them, finally becoming aware of the fact the men were not pursuing them any longer. They packed into a corner of the corral, looking over the corral walls and between the logs, sought to learn what they were doing. They saw one man building a fire in the open, but a few paces from the corral, while the other was calmly and potentially making preparations that were only too familiar to the old mares. The little buckskin beside her mother, always beside her mother, clinging to that big beloved body as the soul clings to life, was wedged into the very corner and right against the logs of the wall so that in her frightened eye, in the middle of the open space between two logs, could see the rancher's house some four rods away. Her eyes were still hurting when she saw the house door open. A little girl appeared. The little filly did not know what kind of animal that was, except that she guessed that it was some sort of man. She perceived with renewed trepidation that the little girl was hopping and skipping directly toward her. In her fright, she pressed tight against her mother, but her mother, much more concerned with the men, and apparently indifferent to the little girl, would not move an inch. When suddenly the little buckskin felt the touch of the little girl's hand on her back, she called out frantically to the mother, but the old mare bent down along her neck, touched the little head with her soft, warm lips, 
murmured reassuringly, and then looked away again. By that time, the filly realised, uncomfortable though she was, that the little hand was not going to hurt her. The little girl climbed up two of the logs, moved slowly toward the little buckskin's head, talking softly and coaxingly as she moved. The filly listened with ears pricked high. In the stream of meaningless prattle, the foal became aware of the existence of the combination of sounds. Queen, as one becomes aware of a constantly repeated malady in a piece of music. By the time the little girl had carefully pushed her head through the space between the two logs, directly in front of the filly's muzzle, the little buckskin, though frightened again, became exceedingly curious. There was something very disarming about that soft voice and the soothing repetition of the word, Queen. She cautiously stretched her muzzle, sniffing at the little mouth, moving it closer and closer, and just when she touched the little girl's face, with a cry of delight, the little girl kissed her fervently on the nose. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed it and are feeling drowsy. I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.